K-Cut, and this is The K-Cut. I'm Rachel, I write for Films Fatale about lost film and world cinema, and I am here with my co-host. Somebody give me a shout-out. James here, content creator and stay-at-home husband. I produce and release music under the alias Boutique Paul. I'm one half of the Prefer Not to Say podcast. I'm part of the Films Fatale team, where I do a column about no-budget cinema, and I'm really excited because it's Smorgasbord Day. Yay! Yes, yay indeed. Uh, I am Andreas. I am uh, the creator and one of the uh, writers and contributors of Films Fatale. I love international and art house cinema, but I do love a little bit of everything. Uh, one of my columns, I guess, is covering every single Best Picture winner, which let me tell you, uh, barely any international stuff there, certainly no art house stuff there. But now that you know what our individual tastes are like, we're going to get into one of our fun favorite segments of the K-Cut, and that is the cinematic smorgasbord. So if you're a new listener, here's the skinny. Basically what happens is once a month, the first Tuesday of said month, we go into this deep dive of these films that none of us have seen before. How does it work? Each co-host recommends a film to the other person who has never seen it, and we get to explore each other's styles a little bit more and more and more as the year rolls on. So that's the first half of the episode. We're going to get into these brand new films that we have never seen before, respectively. So Rachel got a film. I got a film. James got a film. But the second half, we're going to get into a collective pick. So that was uh, something that none of us have seen before. And we invite you listeners at home to, to check these out as well kind of like a book club type thing. The film for this month was uh, Flowers of Shanghai, but we'll get into that in the second half. You're just going to have to wait. For now, we're going to get into our individual picks. So who wants to start? I'll go. Sure. I, I've been All waiting. Right. <laughs> okay, so uh, what were you uh, cursed with this month? And I oh, apologize. Oh, man. Yeah, you gave me a doozy. So <laughs> <laughs> Okay, well, what happened? <laughs> Okay, so I was, you introduced me to the world of acid westerns. And more specifically, Alejandro Jodorowsky's El Topo. And I will tell you, this film is a doozy. In a good way or a bad way? (laughs) In a good way. So, okay, so can, I, I think one of the things I was most impressed with was how a good part of this movie went from Western to almost a martial arts flick and approach. So I I guess I'll just give a quick run through. So we have our, we start off with our lead and he's traveling with his young son. Who's naked. I'm really confused as to why he was naked most of the time for when we see him, but he happens upon you know, this group of uh, banditos, you know, they're these criminals that he ends up like, defeating and liberating these people, which they were a religious group. So almost like clergymen. And then there's a woman who is held captive by these guys. And then he ends up leaving his son with this group of kind of priests and takes the woman with him. And they end up lost in the desert where uh, there's a really problematic scene where he assaults her. And then she's like, I can't love you unless you defeat the four gunmasters who are residing in this desert. And I'm just like, hold on. How did we get from like really weird Western to like martial arts style? You have to defeat this like 
these it's people. a lineup of, of bad people, yes. Yeah, and then it ends up morphing into something completely different by the end, and I'm not going to spoil that because it's just really wild. But I will say, there is a reason I love 70s cinema, and it's because it seems like everybody was so unhinged and just did whatever they want. It was like there's no rules, especially with this. But also, how artistic this movie is. Because this movie isn't just nonsensical. Everything is done with intent. And that was what I was, that really kept me watching. Cause like, you know, all the like allegories and like, you know, just the way certain shots are and the way he presented the story. It's like, Oh, this is really weird, but this is genius. Yeah. No one could call it thoughtless or poorly made. They could call it overly challenging or, um, it's not for the fan part. Exactly. They could call it shocking, but I, it's so hard to see, like, to, to try and claim that stuff here was just happening for no rhyme or reason. I feel like uh, Jodorowsky most certainly, he he mirrors somebody like a Kenneth Anger with, the, you know, this, this imagery of the occult or, um, you know, taking cinematic metaphors to the next level. And, you know, whether it's like an entire dead, you know, valley of like dead rabbits or, yeah, like uh, some of the stuff you've already brought up, it's like, hold on, what in the hell is going on? And he he certainly favors this type of imagery over narrative cohesion because uh, even some of his other stuff, but in this film as well, Al Topo, you see him not have any regard for time and place. Like, uh, you know, time is a linear device, just doesn't exist. Like anything could happen, whatever. Um yeah, like he he has something spiritual and symbolic to say, and he doesn't care what gets bowled over in this process. And, and it was also how, how meticulous it was, because yeah. nothing happens by accident. No, no, absolutely not. Like it's it's not like completely arbitrary or anything, but it is certainly chaotic. And I feel like whether it's shocking you or just not making literal uh realistic sense yeah jodorowsky can most certainly bother the vast majority of people that come across his films but then you have some sickles like myself and it's like this is just unparalleled so you know some of his you know biggest fans include like you know members of the beatles i think one of them was john lennon um bob dylan apparently loves this movie oh yeah yeah I, i i wouldn't be surprised like this is the type of stuff where it's like in a time when a lot of art was being censored and we were seeing the start of like the new Hollywood cinema and, you know, finally we were, we were taking that corner. There's this, which like completely steps on not that like, it's not even about breaking the rules. It just aren't any rules like this. As you said, James, this took what other directors were doing to try and rebel to a whole new level. It's not like Alejandro uh, Jodorowsky was trying to rebel. It's just if he just didn't even know there was a book that you were supposed to follow. Like, this is just him on a natural level. And that's why I feel so like effortlessly insane. Well, I mean, you also got, you also got to think it's also coming out around the same time as like a clockwork orange and straw dogs and all this really weird boundary pushing material that really like, and all these firms were getting banned in multiple places. Like it's amazing. Like people talk about censorship now. It's like in the seventies, there were films being banned everywhere all the time. 
Yeah, absolutely. And I'll say this, though, before we move on. Um, this is not even as weird as film. No. Like, you're looking at a... Oh, uh, I can't wait to get into the, more. The Holy Mountain. <laughs> the Holy Mountain, to me, is quite possibly the most indescribable experience in cinematic history. There's more shocking, there's more disturbing, but in terms of, like, describing what you've seen... If you like the the spiritual pilgrimage, let's say, of of El Topo, then the Holy Mountain, which I prefer El Topo as a film overall. But if you you, you love that weirdness and seeing all these allegories and trying to make sense of it, the Holy Mountain is like no pun intended, the Holy Grail of this, and you'll be like, all right, time to watch this and see what's happening and uh, try to come up with seven thousand different answers by the end of the film. So if you want that experience, you've got the Holy Mountain. What I would say about El Topo is that it is a decadent film. And I don't mean that in the sense that it has a huge budget or lavish backgrounds or anything like that. When I say decadent, I mean it has no holds barred and it's constantly piling on more and more. So I would say that even though it's a small production, it's a very big movie. Even with like whatever budget it might have had, you're absolutely at the, the scale of it. And I think it comes from the ambition of, of Jodorowsky. It's the, uh, the ambition makes it feel larger than life. And it doesn't matter um, like how it was made. Because like the, original, the original copy of this before it was remastered really doesn't look that good. But it doesn't matter because it still feels massive. Mm-hmm. Fantastic. So uh, any, any last words on El Topo before we move on to a more uh, reasonable and uh, normal movie? <laughs> I'm good. I'm good. Cool. Okay. Well, um, Rachel, what about you? Uh, I, I, I'm sorry to have uh, recommended El Topo to, uh, to James because I know you're trying to squeeze in every uh, every picture. And I know that's probably a very strange one. But uh, what did you have to watch this, this time around? I watched Road Racers, which was an early Robert Rodriguez film. And it was actually part of a series of television movies that was remaking certain... Um, B-movies from the 1950s. There there was Road Racers, there were a bunch of others. And this one is interesting because I think it was kind of... It was the movie that I think they wish they could have made at the time. So there was a lot of appreciation for the medium. You know, this was the stuff that Robert Rodriguez really fit into his entire career. But he's also updating it, he's making it grittier, and there's also a bit of an ironic humor about it. I think he's noting that some of the things in it were pretty square. So this movie looks lived in. It's not the sort of sanitized world of 50s movies, the perfect haircuts and things like that. It's updated and it's appreciated, but it's also a bit of humor. Yeah, that was one of the things he was trying to do because he specifically kind of took out looking at things from like a parental lens where, you know, the kids learn their lesson by the end of it all. And the parents were so impossibly square. (laughs) Right. And it's funny because I think his was the last one being made and... Reading the diary that he wrote around the time, he said that they were treating him like he was the one they were pinching pennies with because everybody was going over budget and he was having all these issues that other people weren't having. And uh, what's amazing is this film was shot in 13 days with a million dollar budget. Wow. Yeah, that is unbelievable. And he also got this like insane amount of camera setups like all the like I forgot what the count exactly was but yeah he got like a record setting number of camera setups like just all the shots he was getting because he sh- he shoots to cut he doesn't shoot to like edit later like he doesn't do everything in like master shots and puts it together like he already knows what he's going to shoot so he shoots it as it is and it's also cool because um, he actually wrote this with a friend of his 
like one of his old buddies from school. And uh, they actually based one of the characters. Uh, John Hawk's character was actually based on his friend. Mm-hmm. And uh, the musician that was in the band that's kind of throughout the movie, he was actually uh, somebody from Texas that they knew about. And he's like a legit like rockabilly musician and like lives a lifestyle and everything. Yeah, that definitely shows. Oh, yeah. And he he's actually the composer for the movie. Oh, because I think the only the only music that they got um, licensed was a, were a few Link Ray songs because they wanted to actually have something kind of authentic. But yeah, he actually got because um, they had another composer, but he thought that he should be it because of the story and the setting. And apparently all the other movies weren't really like that great. And it was kind of like plain and boring, which um by the end of it all, they actually sold the the series on the strength of Road Racers because it was the best one. That's understandable. Yeah. I think there were about 10 in all. Yeah, something like that. And they it started all sorts of like, you know, up and coming stars in the 90s. But yeah, it was also the, the American debut of Salma Hayek. Oh, wow. Yeah, that was the first. He put her in this to convince them to or to convince Columbia to let her be in Desperado. And uh, I think it was also an earlier role for David Arquette, who played this role amazingly. Yeah, yeah, I'd agree. I also really appreciate the originals from that era, the the sort of like teenage crime wave sort of thing. So it was really neat to see how much respect Rodriguez has for the genre at the same time. He's not just taking the piss at them. Yeah, it's it's injecting a modern sensibility in the right way and exactly. not just trying to like it wasn't set in the 90s. And I think that's what was the best part is like they actually tried to keep it to the time. It's not sanitized. Yeah, it definitely isn't. Also, just it's funny. There's actually stories he was talking about how um, the cast ended up like styling their own hair because they were doing it better because everybody was kind of just going through the motions and kind of like ruining the looks. Yeah, I don't know. I think I think the story of the making of it is a lot more fascinating than the film itself. But I think it's just a good movie overall. And I, I think for a TV film, it really knocks it out of the park. Oh, yeah. I didn't even realize it was a TV film until I looked it up. Like it's got a very good production value. Right. I didn't even know it until like they re-released it. Like mm-hmm. I had no, I didn't know it existed. And I was like, oh, that's cool. Yeah. Imagine if like all TV films back then were shot that good. Yeah. Well, they are now. I think they're getting a lot better. <laughs> oh yeah. Well, I mean, I, I think the streaming services kind of helped push that along though. True. It's like they can't afford to make something cheap and cheesy. Exactly. Although, you know, there's something about those early creaky ones that still brings out the nostalgia. Oh yeah. Most definitely. Mm-hmm. So what was the third movie that was recommended this week? Yeah, I've uh, remained quiet because I unfortunately could not get around to uh, to your film, Rachel. Uh, not the one you recommended to me, but the one that was recommended to you. Too bad so, uh, you could have seen I, the only copy I found, which was dubbed in French. Oh, uh, well, uh, c'est la vie, as they say en français. Um, no, instead, uh, the one that you recommended to me, Rachel. And uh, can you believe it? You know, like an actual Hollywood film from the 50s that I have yet to see. That's the power of Rachel, everyone, uh, being able to, to know which ones I've not seen, and a classic at that as well. Uh, it's the K-Mutiny, and I've got to tell you, uh, probably very stupid of me to assume, I was uh, very stunned to see that this was actually like a pretty beautiful color film. I was expecting maybe something of black and white for its era. Yeah, no, it was, um, it was not only filmed in color, it was filmed on location in Hawaii and California, like the beaches. Yeah, and for me, what I like the most about it, um, it kind of feels like you're watching three films at once almost, like this 
kind of more positive look at like, you know, the military or the Navy and, you know, this, you know, I, I captain type of attitude. Then it goes into the titular mutiny side of things. And um, it, it almost turns into like a disaster film of sorts when uh, the actual, you know, the cane, the sea vessel that we're discussing uh, under, you know, undergoes this massive storm. Obviously, some pathetic fallacy uh, done pretty well. Um, but then it ends off with like like it's almost like a courtroom drama. So you're really getting this triptych of films here. And, it, you know, it almost feels like there's a, there's three acts because you don't see Humphrey Bogart for a while. And then, bam, there he is. Um, yeah, it really is a, a film with three acts. And I feel like for what it's worth, um, each act has its own prominence, which certainly makes the K-Mutiny uh, worth the two hours. You can definitely say it's stage origins. See, I should have done my research. I actually didn't know it was built for the stage, but now that you've mentioned it, I, I, even like the the ship storm, or sorry, even like the storm scenes, now that you mention it, I can see why, because so much of them are still focused like within the vessel and seeing everybody, you know, all these extreme close-ups or, uh, you know, medium shots of, you know, the people within the, you know, within the sea vessel as there's a storm happening. Um, it's not really fixated on just the storm itself. So I totally believe it now that you've said it. Yeah, absolutely. And um, the U.S. Navy also had its hands very deep in this movie. Um, like they, they had to have a little title card saying there was no actual real mutiny in the United States Navy, which I think was true at the time. Not sure if it still is. I have no interest in naval matters, but anyway. <laughs> <laughs> Wait, so uh, this is not based on, on true events then? Okay. No. Uh, I believe there was one attempted mutiny on a naval ship in 1842 or something, but nobody going in to see the Cane Mutiny would remember that. And uh, on, on the topic of, of mutiny and whatnot, uh, the one thing, and even other iterations of this story, I can't help but, but do this with. I couldn't help but stop thinking of, you know, Mutiny on the Bounty, you know, the, the Lawton Gable version, um, which, again, there's other versions of Mutiny on the Bounty, which, have, you know, they pale in comparison. I feel like, uh, you know, it's so hard to not think because it's not even just the fact that they're both about Mutiny, but there's a lot of similar storytelling elements um, between these films and a little bit of like a you know, in the slightest sense, Battleship Potemkin feel as well, like the slightest sense. You know, I'm talking not about like the steps and everything in the village, but, you know, the the, uh, the onboard stuff. But, you know, for what it's worth, even comparing it to these other films, uh, the game Mutiny has a very distinctive feel, particularly because of its gorgeous, like red, white, and blue color scheme, which I don't know if that's intentional that it was like that, but it still looks fantastic. Um because of how they they laid out the structure of this so it could stand on its own two feet and you know not be compared to these other films too too much outside of their thematic uh their thematic elements and yeah otherwise overall i think it was it was a quite good uh golden age of hollywood technicolor dreamboat yeah absolutely and what'd you think of bogart i mean the guy's always a legend what i love a lot about his performance is it's still classic Bogart. Like this is somebody who was brought up in the thirties and forties of acting, still p portraying that side of Hollywood here. But 
because it was the 50s and they were maybe a little bit more uh, light in terms of like how much to your character you can show to see like his, you know, his, his grit and gruff type of persona within this, within this capacity. I feel like uh, he was definitely utilized really well. And I mean, it's Humphrey Bogart. The guy could have played an egg and would have been fantastic. And for one of his, uh, one of his latter performances of his career, always golden. Love Humphrey Bogart. Can never complain about him. Yeah, um, it's my favorite of his three Oscar-nominated performances, even though it's the least famous one. Oscar-nominated. So does that include uh, the African Queen? Yes, he, he was nominated three times, okay. Casablanca, African Queen, which he won for, and then this one, and then he died three years after this movie was made. Yeah, which which breaks my heart. But um, I didn't realize that he wasn't nominated for any of his, like, like, like his uh, straight-up noir stuff. That's kind of depressing, People didn't take him that seriously as an actor for a lot of those movies. I, I'm surprised about Treasure this year, Madre, to be honest, but right. the rest I kind of get. That's 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 too bad. Um, well, recipes Humphrey Bogart, but at least I got to. So I've seen all three of his Oscar-nominated performances. <laughs> I, I didn't even realize that. No, he's brilliant. Was he considered a lead for this? Yes, yes, he was always lead. Fantastic. They were much more rigid back then with who was lead and who was supporting in actors. Oh, yeah, because I feel like nowadays, because of, like, you know, when he shows up and the capacity, you know, you could see producers arguing, you know, depending on what competition you'll have. No, let's make him a supporting or whatever, but whatever. He's, he's one of the greats, and, yeah, thank you for introducing me. I mean, I've obviously known him to K-Mutiny, but I never sat down and watched it until this, so thank you for the recommendation. Absolutely. Now uh, we're going to dip into the second half of the episode. Uh, so this was a collective pick that I picked. And this is one that when I was doing my film research last year and looking at all of these acclaimed films of the nineties, there were like every other decade, a couple of things I just did not get around to. So I was always curious about the flowers of Shanghai by, um, Ho Xiao Shen. And if I'm not mistaken, that's probably also the first film of his that either of you have seen because of the smorgasbord, correct? Yes. So what I'm wondering is, first off, for my own personal opinion, I liked it quite a bit, but I also feel like he's had better films. However, this is one of his best looking films. It's just a gorgeous, gorgeously shot film. But because this is the first foray into any of his films, I'm curious as to what you both think, because he's got a very glacial hypnotic, distant type of style. What did you think of his direction? Did it work for you? Because I can easily understand if it didn't. It was definitely something that is not for everybody. For sure. More regards, I'd say pacing and I think the subject matter. Mm-hmm. You know, it's, it's one of those, it's very balanced in the tempo at which it moves. And I can see where some people get would get lost, but I would say it's also very interesting because it's very isolated because all it, it takes place in rooms. And a lot of the same rooms. Mm-hmm. Yes, and not only are the sets isolated, like it, it only confines itself to those few spaces, but it's about a lifestyle where you are by default isolated from other people. It's also a society that I think is isolated from the rest of Shanghai. Yeah, uh, Ho Xiao Shen has this, it's almost like a meditative type of direction style where, and this is what happened when uh, his film The Assassin came out and 
Uh, I guess because it did really well at, at, at cons, people wanted to see this thing, and they weren't prepared for what they were uh, what they were in for, which was um, yes, action. Action was there because it's a Wuxia film, but he really is more about the spaces in between stuff happening, and not in a way that Sergio Leone is, where it's building up to stuff happening. Like quite a bit of stuff happens at the end of Flowers of Shanghai, but in a way that it almost catches you off guard because it's like a disruption to your Zen nature that you're now a part of, you know, he's more like, um, he's quite different as a filmmaker, but, um, yeah. Otherwise, uh, how was the experience overall, even like outside of his, uh, his direction? What did we all think? Well, obviously it was an enormous aesthetic treat. Yeah, it was very aesthetic, especially does he have other films that are just dimly lit the entire thing? Oh, God. Uh, yeah, I mean, because the dim light was really what caught my attention because it almost had made me like look closer and try to like focus more because I'm like, I don't want to miss anything because it's like there's a crowd of people all the time and then there's dim light. So it's like there could be things happening. I'm not noticing. Well, that was thanks to the work of um, Mark Lee Pingbing, who's worked on a number of things. Uh, one of uh, the other noteworthy films, especially of Ho Xian's, is A Million in Mambo, which came out like right at the start of the, of the 2000s, and it still feels very 90s and aesthetic. Yeah, no, this guy is a, is a fantastic cinematographer. He's worked with Ho Xian a number of times, as well as, yeah, just like a, a number of... Uh, noteworthy photographical films. So I'm not surprised that it looked as good as it looked, but I mean, still like to look at this thing, I didn't know too, too much about it outside of the fact that it's supposed to look nice. And judging by the promotional artwork, I was expecting something a little bit more cream colored and like vanilla because of like all of the uses of like, you know, floral arrangements. But this thing is like a green red palette of like just rich colors. Yeah, it was definitely I'm all about the colors. I don't know. I think just, I think Eastern Asian culture is just aesthetic throughout history. And any, any depiction I see is always like, why does this always look so stylish? Why does this look amazing? And then I just think about, you know, here in America, I'm just like, there's such a weird industrial way that it's always shot here. But, you know, you, you go to any era of Japan and there's always, it's a very artistic, like way of just living. Absolutely. So, um, I will say again, I, I did I did like this one. I liked it quite a bit, but I do feel like he's got better films. Uh, would either of you be enticed to see anything of his after watching this, or do you feel like you've you've had enough of Ho Xiaoxian for perhaps a while? I've watched his other stuff. I do feel this one lagged a bit. I mean, I'm all for a slow-paced movie once in a while, but this one I think could have picked it up a bit. I do agree with that. He's actually got longer films, but... You know, with similar pacing, but like you said, because of the subject matter and the delivery, um, even with such a slow pace, it kind of works a bit better. I do feel like, I don't know, maybe it was like this this fixation on separating things into chapters, so they had to have this this harmony, maybe, and like this uh, spatial relation. Maybe that's why it lagged on for, for a, a little bit longer than maybe it needed to. I think overall it was good, but yeah, I for sure would have uh, maybe done a bit of trimming. I don't know, perhaps where I'd have to really think about it. But yeah, I do feel like it, it did drag on just a teensy, teensy bit, which is not never fun. It could have been a lean 90 minutes. Mm-hmm. Or an hour 45. 
Exactly, exactly. Um, anyway, speaking of uh, trimming things down, we should probably head on over to the next section of the pod. Um, this is, uh, oddly enough, we do the smorgasbord every, every once in a while, once a month, but this is uh, typically when we get the happiest, is finding out what we get to watch next month. So uh, before we do that, though, uh, you're going to need to know where to find us. So Rachel, where can you find us? We're on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram under the KCOT. We like to post about our upcoming episodes and little tidbits of film trivia, so come join us there. Absolutely. Sounds good to me. So, the way that this works is, for new listeners, now we're going to give each other our new picks for the month. So, we're going to have one communal one we're going to save for the end. We go in a certain order. So, since I went, now it's James's turn to pick a film for all three of us to watch. Hopefully none of us have seen it. Otherwise, I'm going to be giving something to Rachel. Rachel, you're going to be giving something to James. And James, you're going to be recommending something to me. So, who wants to find out their film first? Oh, I would. Me. <laughs> well, Ra- Rachel said it first. I'm so sorry, James. You're just going to have to wait a couple of minutes. So, Rachel, um, for you, for better or for worse, I'm wrapping up my um, cinematography list. Mm-hmm. And there's one film that stuck out, and I, I've brought it up before. I don't think you've seen it. I don't think I've recommended it before. It's getting to a point where I'm forgetting what I've recommended. Me too. Um, it's, but that's a, good, that's a good problem to have. So, I'm hoping you've not seen this, but one of the most visually arresting, beautiful films of all time, and one of my personal top ten favorite films of all time, I'm recommending to you... The Double F of Veronique by uh, Krzysztof uh, Kieslowski. Yes, I've never seen that, so that is a good one. Amazing, and unlike a lot of my other picks, this is a lean 90 minutes or so, so it's a nice short one. There you go. It's my favorite film of the 90s and in my top 10 favorite films of all time, so I, I hope you like it. It's it's an odd one, but I I adore it, so that's, that's your film, The Double F of Veronique. Okay, and James, have you seen the Marilyn Monroe classics on Like It Hot? No, I haven't. Now you will see the Marilyn Monroe classics on Like It Hot. Oh, this is a really good lineup so far. Okay, all right. Three for three, what's mine? All right, so this is a film I actually watched recently. Um, It's a 2013 film called Coherence, and it is a sci-fi film, and it's a low-budget one, so it's obviously in my area of expertise, but it's really good, and it's like, story-wise, it's like primer-level dense, but it's really cool how they do it. Have you brought this up before? I don't remember. I may have, I may not have. I don't know. It's one of those films that turns out to be like one big Twilight Zone episode. Okay. Say no more. That's right up my alley. I am so stoked now. Fantastic. So uh, we've got Coherence, the double F of Veronique, and Some Like It Hot. So that's three of the four. James, since we're still on you, what are we all watching for this month? So I decided to go with the 1982 Bollywood film Disco Dancer. Ooh. What? Yes. So we're going to India. I'm loving Bollywood. That is so out of left field. Wow, this is this is interesting. We've we haven't talked about Bollywood on, on this pod before, so fantastic pick. Yeah, I saw a clip of it on Twitter once and I just was like I thought about it recently and I said, you know what? 
Yep, this this is gonna be it. We're gonna we're gonna go uh, take a trip to India. Sounds good. Awesome. So, listeners at home, if you want to join us, you can watch any of our three picks. So, coherence, some like a hot and the double F of Veronique, or you can take part in our communal pick uh, chosen by James this week. It's Disco Dancer by Babar Shabash. So, this is gonna be some exciting, versatile stuff. Otherwise, that was the K-Cut. Thank you so much for listening to another episode of the Cinematic Smorgasbord. See you next month or next week. Uh, We're not going into the L-Cut. Bye.